Welcome to Life in the Valley, the podcast of the people at Summit Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We gather each week in the heart of St. Paul on historic Summit Avenue, where our mission is to create rhythm, opportunity, and location where people like you can have life-changing experiences with God. Our podcast is one of those locations. As followers of Christ, we are doing our best to be on mission, disciple others, deliver hope, and champion this city. At any point in your journey with us today, if you want to take a next step or you just want to stay in the loop with everything going on at Summit, just grab your phone and simply text the phrase, be known, all one word, be known to the number 651-360-2908. We will send you a short form that makes it super easy for you to complete. There's always new opportunities to mention and new ways that you can get involved. One of the rhythms that is important to following Jesus and important to us at Summit is studying scripture. As we study the Bible, we can have one, hope, two, find guidance, three, be corrected, and four, receive truth into our lives. Listen in and lean in with us wherever you are, open up God's word, and hear this week's message. glad that you guys have energy this morning because even though I live in Minnesota and I am used to Minnesota culture, I love when there's energy in a room and I'm super thankful that we get to be together and talk through God's word and that is always exciting. Amen? Well, as he said, my name is Jen. I have lived in Minnesota 14 years. I've been married for just about 22 years and I have three girls They're 16, 17, and 20. And that immediately gives me street cred with some of you because you recognize that three teenage girls in the house at one time is no joke, right? We are, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about myself because parts of my story will be unpacked a little bit in today's message. But I do want to jump into the importance of community. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time this morning in Galatians chapter 6. And Pastor Eric shared with me that you guys have been in a series called Story Church and looking at Paul's epistles to the New Testament church. And I find this very fascinating because I think a lot of what the New Testament church was dealing with is very similar to what our modern day church is dealing with right now. Sin is sin. It honestly hasn't changed that much. I think sometimes the packaging looks a little different, but sexual sin was in the Bible and it's rampant right now. Pride was in the Bible and it's rampant right now. Selfishness, idolatry, you name it. But there's something that I think the New Testament church did really well that I think our modern day church could learn from. And that's how to do community. You see, their entire culture was based on community. Women raised their children together. Men plowed the fields together. In fact, they didn't even read scripture in isolation. Scripture was always read in community because there weren't enough Bibles or Old Testament Torahs to be in print for everyone to have their own personal copy. Community was their way of life, and they were rarely in isolation. And in our modern-day culture, isolation is a part of life, and we have to step out of isolation to be intentionally be in community. The roles have flipped. I was reading an article published in 2019 in USA Today 
about the effects of loneliness. And this article says that Generation Z is the loneliest generation to date. In fact, their loneliness scores are double that of people over the age of 70. We are more connected than ever before through social media. We have more followers than any other generation before us, and yet we are not known. Nearly half of Americans report feeling alone or left out most, if not all, of the time. And a Cigna did a survey, and it says that one in five Americans feels as though they have absolutely no one to talk to. At first, that doesn't feel like that big a number, but when you consider that in a room this size of approximately 200 people, that means at least 40 of you in this room feel isolated and alone and as though you have no one to truly be known by. And while loneliness may not feel like it's honestly that big a deal, a study done by Brigham Young University says that loneliness has the same impact on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. The effect of your loneliness on on your mortality is actually greater than the problem of obesity. Loneliness is an issue. And this article also cited a number of reasons why loneliness is at an all-time high. And I think, you know what, for most of us, things already popped into our minds about why loneliness might be an issue. But the very first thing that this article cites as a problem is that church attendance has declined. Even the world knows that the church is the solution to the problems that they're dealing with. Because in the 70s, church attendance was an average monthly 57% of the population. In 2019, that had dropped to 34% of the population. And now in this post-COVID pandemic, we're at 28% of the population goes to church monthly. That's not even weekly community. If the world recognizes that the church plays a role in solving this issue, do we? Do we understand, as the body of Christ, the role that God is calling us to carry in bringing light to this world? Pastor Eric asked me to share a little bit of my story this morning. I was born and raised in Connecticut. I'm an East Coast girl. One more East Coast girl in the room. I don't sound like it. I've been off the East Coast long enough that I no longer have that thick accent. My parents got married because my mom got pregnant her senior year of high school, and it was the good Catholic thing to do to make sure that you, you did things for appearances. Shortly after I was born, they were pregnant again, had my brother, were 18 months apart, And by the time I was three years old, my parents were divorcing because my mom was unfaithful. So when I was three, my brother and I moved in with my grandparents, and they raised us. And my grandparents were phenomenal people. They provided a stable home. They sent me to a good Catholic elementary school. I had a nice little green jumpsuit and knee-high socks. And no, I did not bring pictures. Most of those have been burned. And while I had 
a fairly stable childhood. It was anything but traditional. And I did know the difference. I did feel the difference. When I was in fifth grade, variety of reasons, my brother and I moved in with my mom. And over the course of the next year, we moved six times across three different states, Connecticut, New York, Florida, New York, Connecticut, Florida. Say that five times fast. By the end of my sixth grade year of school, my mom had left that boy and moved on to another boy, and they were married that August after knowing him six months. And he had gotten addicted to prescription painkillers because he'd been in an accident. He was an elevator repairman and had been injured. And I don't know what kind of drugs he was on, but he was a nice guy most of the time. And he would have these flares of anger where things would get thrown and yelled. And I came home one particular afternoon that October from school, and he had my mom cornered in the kitchen, and she's screaming, call 911. This is back when phones were still attached to walls. Some of you might be familiar with that time. He grabs my arm, and he won't let me go. And so my mom fends him off, and she and I flee the house, and we go hide at a neighbor's until my brother gets home, and then a few hours go by. He's left the house, and he comes home later that evening. He seems to have mellowed out. My mom goes into the bedroom to check on him and finds him dead of a drug overdose in our home. His funeral was October 31st. My mom's new boyfriend moved in in January. And this guy was a piece of work as well. And he began molesting me that May. And the hardest part about all of that was that every time he did something, crossed a line, my mom was made aware by me of what was going on. And there was excuse after excuse after excuse. Until January of my eighth grade year, when it had gotten bad enough that I spoke up. And eventually CPS got involved and he was arrested. But by the time I entered high school, I was a very broken young woman. I was having physical ailments from all of the stress and not knowing how to deal with it. In the middle of all the chaos that had been going on, someone had invited me to go Christmas caroling with the church choir. It was an aunt. So I start Christmas caroling with this church choir. I don't know any of these people except my aunt. And they invite me to join their choir. There are no other teen or preteen girls in this choir. I was definitely the odd person out. But there was something about this group of people that I was drawn to. And I joined the choir before I had ever stepped foot in their church. And what's interesting to me as I consider that now at this point in my life, I recognize that I wasn't drawn to their God or Jesus. I was drawn to the way this group of people made me feel. They were a safe place in the midst of really hard, trying circumstances. I didn't need their counsel, although I'm sure they gave me a lot of it. I don't remember, honestly, the wisdom they poured out into me during that season, and I was part of that group of people for six years. I just remember 
that this was a group of people who knew me and loved me. And I think that's what God is calling the church to be. They don't care so much how much we know. They just want to know that this is a house that they can step in and they can be fully known. If you're taking notes, the title of today's message is Fully Known and Fully Loved. I didn't realize until I pulled into your parking lot this morning that part of your mission on the sign is to be known. And I absolutely love that because I think every single one of us has a desire to be known and loved for who we are. We're going to spend, like I said earlier, the bulk of our time in Galatians chapter 6. Some of you are worried that I wasn't going to open a Bible because we're like 10 minutes into this thing and I haven't said a single scripture. But if you have your paper Bible or an electronic one, you can follow along. I'm reading from the CSB. Starting in verse 1, it says, Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so you won't be tempted also. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he is deceiving himself. But each person should examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in himself alone and not in respect to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your promises. God, thank you for the work that you are doing in each and every one of us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you want to speak to each of us individually today. Lord, I pray for a posture of humility for every person in this room, me first, Lord, that we would be led by the Spirit of God, prompted by the Spirit of God, to bring forth the word that you have for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to start by talking about verse 2 in this passage in Galatians. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I've been in church for 20 plus years, and I've heard many people talk about bearing one another's burdens, but not so much when it comes to fulfilling the law of Christ. So what is the law of Christ? Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 39, context is that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to get him to slip up and say something, and so they said this to him, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, he being Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Typically, when I've heard this passage shared or I've read it myself, I think to myself, okay, when it comes to loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I by no means have it perfected, but it seems to me that I have some understanding of what that means or what it should look like. But it, when it says, love your neighbor as yourself, I have 
honestly struggled with what that should look like because I don't always know how I love myself or what loving myself looks like. And part of the reason I struggle with knowing what that looks like is because I just know myself way too well. I know all of the mistakes I've made. I know all of the poor thoughts that I think. I know all the days that I chose sleep over reading my Bible or was judgmental towards someone. And I'm, I'm fully aware of the pain that I've caused the people around me. So if this verse said, love your neighbor as you love your children, it would be a lot easier for me to understand. Because I've had a front row seat to seeing my kids' shortcomings. I've dealt with their sassy behaviors. I've seen their selfishness come out. And yet, regardless of the choices my kids have made, I love them unconditionally. Seeing the mistakes that they have made doesn't change how I feel about them. And if I can take that context and place it into the relationships, the neighbors that God has placed around me, I would be much more effective in my love for them. Because the problem is, what happens with our neighbors is we see their shortcomings and we get frustrated, we lose patience, we get irritable, we push them away. I am not in any way saying that to love your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean there aren't consequences for sin or that we don't have boundaries. My daughter and I had a discussion last night because I was talking to her a little bit about this and she said, yeah, but it's different, mom. Like what, what could I ever do that would you know, push you away? And I said, well, the reality is that there are still boundaries even in a mother-child relationship. If, you're, if you have destructive behavior, you may have to move out of the home if you're not willing to follow our rules. So loving my neighbor as myself doesn't remove boundaries, but it does make sure that every boundary that I set is done in the context of love. So the law of Christ is fulfilled when we love God and love our neighbor. And Paul says that we do this by carrying one another's burdens. So let's go back to verse 1. How do we do this? First of all, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, remember that, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. If I the privilege of writing something in scripture, and you're all glad that I am not the author of scripture, because I would totally screw it up, but if I had, I would not have started this context of carrying one another's burdens with accountability. I would have maybe slipped it in a little further down in the text as a side note if I had mentioned it at all, because I think accountability for most of us is uncomfortable. For a few of you, you might be a little too comfortable with accountability, but for most of us, we're not big fans of holding one another accountable. And that's because I think we've made accountability confrontational rather than communal. It's often thought of in this formal context, kind of like when I was a kid and I had to go before the priest. 
we had to go in this little confessional and he would shut the door and he would say, forgive me, Father, it's been 23 days since my last confession and here's what I did. And then he'd say, say five Our Fathers and 10 Hail Marys and you'll be absolved of your sin. But this isn't how we see Jesus handle confront, uh, accountability. I think about how Jesus handled accountability with Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter has this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says to him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, Peter had to be feeling pretty good about himself in this context, because of the 12, Jesus just called him out and said, you're the one I'm going to build my church on. It's like three or four verses later, in the same passage of scripture, where Jesus is talking about the suffering that he's about to come against, and Peter says, no, Jesus, not you, no. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not understand the things of God. What in the world? First of all, can you imagine if we handled accountability in the church like that? Every time somebody said something that was contrary to scripture, get behind me, Satan. Our churches would be empty real fast. So I'm by no means suggesting that this is how we start to speak to one another. What I am suggesting is that Jesus didn't have to go away and fast and pray about whether or not he would talk to Peter about missing the mark. Jesus didn't ask the other 11 if they saw the same sin pattern in Peter that he was seeing. He didn't get people to pray and fast. He didn't go to the temple and ask the priests of the day or like our modern day pastors, if they would intercede on his behalf as he had this tough conversation. He just spoke to Peter in the context of community. He spoke the truth and he moved on. What does that look like for us? You're hanging out with some of your friends and you see a behavior that's off the mark. Maybe they were snappy at a cashier. Maybe they're snarky at their spouse. Maybe they're yelling at their kids inappropriately. We pull our friend aside and say, hey, you doing okay? You seem a little off today. Something weighing on you? You need anything? Can I support you? Want to talk? And it's done. And we don't leave the conversation and feel the need to broadcast what happened to anyone else. It's just done in a safe, loving environment. And all of this requires proximity. You have to be able to see something in order to say something. The purpose of proximity isn't just for the sake of accountability. The reality is that you can't help carry a load from a distance. If I see someone across the room carrying a heavy box in today's culture, the response often would be, good job, that looks like a heavy box. You're doing a great job. You only got a few more steps to go. That's ridiculous, and yet that's what we often do. Instead of going and saying, hey, can I help you carry the box? Can I lighten the load? Can I take a few items out of the box to make it a little lighter? In Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites are going to battle against the Amalekites. And you may be familiar with the story, but Moses was charged with keeping his arms up 
in, during the battle, and every time his arms were raised, the Israelites were winning, and when he would put his arms down, the Israelites started losing. This could go on for a long time, and Moses was getting tired. If this happened in modern-day context, it would probably be live-streamed on Facebook and Instagram, and there would be people filled with comments about how he was handling this. Hey, Mo, maybe you should go to the gym a little more often. Then you'd have the strength to keep your arms up longer. Hey, Mo, maybe you should eat a few less Oreos and a few more apples so you weren't so weak. Hey, Mo, if you tighten your core and you hold your arms just a little bit differently, you'll be able to go even longer. Or, hey, Mo, how about I write a check so that you can afford to buy better artillery for the people in the battle, and then the battle will be over that much faster. Now, listen, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with comments on social media or sending money to those in need. What I am saying is that throwing money or comments at a situation is not carrying a burden. What we see in this passage is that Aaron and her, his friends, first brought him a rock so he could sit. And then they got all up under that boy's sweaty pits and held his arms up for him. This was before Old Spice, folks. That had to be a sacrifice. Can we just be real? Aaron and her, first of all, didn't, Scripture doesn't tell us that Moses asked for their help. Scripture doesn't tell us that Aaron and her stood on the sidelines until Moses told them exactly what they needed. It's possible that Moses communicated it, but I'm really thankful that this isn't in Scripture. Because oftentimes when we see someone carrying a burden, we make the assumption that they're going to tell us exactly what they need when they're walking through it. And nine times out of ten, they have no idea what they need. Or even if they did know what they need, they surely don't feel comfortable asking for it. Because even though we're called to carry one another's burdens, none of us like to feel like we are giving a burden to someone else. It just says that they did it. And that required proximity. That required proximity so that they could see what the need was and step in to meet it. Scripture does not say that Aaron and her removed the burden. It just says that they helped carry it. It was still Moses' job to keep his arms up. And I think in church context especially, we get really uncomfortable watching people carry burdens. We feel like we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. Sometimes we say the wrong thing. Sometimes almost worse than saying the wrong thing is saying absolutely nothing at all. And because we're so fearful of doing the wrong thing, we do absolutely nothing. Carrying one another's burdens doesn't mean that we are called to fix the burden. Aaron and her didn't fix the problem. They didn't, they didn't magically make the battle go away by supporting Moses. They just got up in his business and said, you know what? I don't care how long this takes. I don't care what it looks like. We've got you. 
We're going to be here beside you through the battle. Carrying one another's burdens is also not about pleading God's case for him. I think sometimes we feel like when someone's going through a hard time, sometimes they're doubting God even in the burden or questioning why something would happen. We feel like we have to defend God as if God needs us to make him look good. He hasn't asked us to plead his case. The Spirit of God can do that on his own. I think one of the primary reasons that we struggle to keep our mouths quiet and listen is our pride. Several years ago, I was walking through a trial, and I was meeting with a professional counselor, Christian counselor, amazing man through the process. And I worked on staff at a church during this season, and I had two different girlfriends on staff at the same church. And within a few days time, I had spoken to both of my friends about this particular challenge I was walking through, and they both had opinions. The problem was that their opinions were actually on opposing viewpoints. So they both gave me their spiritual godly wisdom, and it was completely opposite one another, and both of their viewpoints were opposite of what the counselor was suggesting I do. Pride has us longing to provide solutions. We want to be the hero. We want to have the answer. But we are called to encourage one another to hear from God themselves. We are to teach people and encourage them to get on their knees in prayer, to open God's word, to affirm what the Spirit is saying to them rather than assuming that we are somehow God's mouthpiece and that he needs to speak to us in order for them to hear from God. I am not discounting that God does not speak or work through people. He absolutely does. But if we have a word for someone in their time of need, let's make sure it's a God word rather than a good word. There was a study done where a group of people were put in a room on computers and they were to give online advice to people. And then at the end of this study, some of the people were told that their advice was listened to, and some of the people were told that their advice was not listened to. And the people whose advice was heated, like heated, not heated, listened to, said that they felt more powerful than the people whose advice was not listened to. Now, I don't think that we traditionally give advice because we in some way want to feel powerful over someone. But I do think the same principle applies. Our desire to go and change the world, to speak the truth, to proclaim the gospel, sometimes has us overzealous and how we communicate to people. Scripture doesn't ask us to judge the burden. It doesn't ask us to fix the burden. It doesn't ask us to remove the burden. It simply asks us to help carry it. And the humility breeds trust in our relationships. 
You see, when we approach people with a posture of humility, they're willing to listen, and they know that we can be then trusted. Trust is foundational in relationships, and I don't think that trust should just automatically be given to anyone, but I think there are a few key questions we can ask. Can I trust that you will listen and not judge me or attempt to fix me? Can I trust that what I share stays between us? Broadcasting burdens breaks down trust. When someone shares something with you, and you share it with other people, even if you're sharing it with the pastoral staff, and they get word that you shared their burden with others without permission, that's immediately a breakdown in trust. Can I trust that you are the same person in both public and private? Are you consistent? And once we've discerned who is trustworthy, there's another part to this equation. We have to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to open ourselves up and let people in. Katie, you can come and play. Some people are great at carrying burdens for everyone else and not so good at letting others carry their own burdens. In November of this past year, so three months ago, I tore my calf muscle. I know you're all imagining this really great, cool story about how I tore my calf muscle, but I did it while making my bed. Sunday afternoon, I had been at the gym and I ran three miles on the treadmill and then went to bed Monday morning, got up 6 a.m., stretched the wrong way to reach across, and there it went. 90% of the journey to healing of this muscle has been on me. I had to know when to rest. I had to know when I could start to use it. I had to show up at the gym and begin cardio slowly, time over time again. And this past week, three months later, I'm finally back to running. I got to two miles this past week. And I was so excited because three months of just doing the work. The problem is I've still had pain. Almost every single day, every single day, my calf hurts. And this made me nervous because why, if I've done all the right things, is it still hurting? So I texted a friend of mine who's in physical therapy and I said, what should I do? And she immediately said to me, stop running. And I was not a fan of that answer. She said, you've done everything right. You've checked all the boxes. But this last 10% you can't do on your own. You need to go see a physical therapist. And I was really frustrated. Sometimes I feel a little bit like a three-year-old and I want to scream, I can do it all by myself. But the reality is, this last part of the healing journey I need someone else. I need someone who can say, you know what? Your running gait is off just a little bit. You know what? 
your core is just a little bit weak in this area. As much as I want to be able to do it all by myself, I can't. And that's not how God calls us to live. You know, it's occurred to me that that Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, he absolutely could have come to this earth and preached the word of God and delivered his message on his own. He could have been a one-man show. He didn't need anybody else to help him perform the miraculous. And yet he chose to do it always in the context of community. Many of us have been hurt in the context of community. Church hurt is real. And oftentimes that church hurt means that this is the one place that we want to withdraw more than anything else, anywhere else. But the reality is that church isn't supposed to be transactional. It's not just supposed to be a box we check or slip in and sit in the back row and slip out as soon as the service is done. There's a consumer mentality that's often found in the body of Christ. And it's all about who's meeting my needs. Who's helping me? Did I like the message? Did the message speak to me? Did the pastor say hi to me? What did I get out of church? But what if we flipped it and say, what do I bring to the church? If I'm not there, will they miss me? If I don't play my part, will it be noticed? Who is better because I am a part of the body of Christ? And whose burdens are in this room that God is asking me to help carry the load for? In 2018, a movement was started after a school shooting in Parkland, Florida. And it was, the call, it was called Walk Up, Not Out. And the purpose of this movement was that the students would start to walk up to the people who were broken or seemed a little off and hurting and start a conversation with them rather than just walking out in protest. God wants Summit Church to be a place where we're known for walking up, where we're known for loving one another well, that people can come in these doors and be fully known and still fully loved. I don't know all of the hurt that you're carrying this morning. I don't know what load you came in here with. But my prayer for you today is that if you're one of those percentage-wise 40 people that feels alone, that you won't leave today still feeling alone. Let's be a church that walks up and not out. I'm going to ask prayer teams to come forward. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And I want to pray for you. And if you're one of those that came in with a need this morning, a heavy burden, 
The prayer teams are going to be up here and they want to pray for you. Come with a posture of humility and some vulnerability and let the Holy Spirit do a healing in your heart. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these people. Thank you, Lord, that you are so much a God that walks up and not out, that you even sent your son to earth to build those relationships. You are a personal, loving, heavenly Father. And Lord, I just pray for a healing to take place in this church this morning. God, those who have been wounded, who feel isolated, alone, abandoned. I pray that this would be a safe place. I pray that this would be a place where people feel as though they can be fully known and fully loved this morning. And Lord, I pray as your church leaves this house this morning, God, that we would be intentional to carry one another's burdens, that we would walk in proximity, that we would walk in humility, that there would be trust built, and that we would be willing to be vulnerable so that we can fulfill the call you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. To help you apply the truth found in scripture, we always like to ask three questions. What did you learn about God? What did you learn about yourself? How are you going to apply what the Holy Spirit is speaking through scripture to your life? We hope that helps bring clarity for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life in the Valley, the podcast of the people of Summit Church. Join us in person sometime as we gather as a church on Summit Avenue, or join us here at our podcast again, or virtually at our online encounter each week. Before you go though, Pastor Eric is going to give you a special invitation and share just part of his heart for you the culture, and a little bit about the people of Summit Church. Hey, Pastor Eric Samuel Tim here. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Let me first say, our city of St. Paul is absolutely amazing. I encourage you to explore all the history it has to offer. And you need to know this, Summit Church has been a part of that history, along with so many amazing churches. Speaking specifically about the people of Summit, Well, we've been gathering here since about 1932. And my hope that this would not just be a rich history, but it would be our forward legacy. History is a thing of the past, but legacy makes way for the future. So where are we going? That's a good question. Our vision is simple, to see all people of St. Paul and beyond living as disciples of Christ, people full of hope, fully known, and actively loving one another living a spirit-led life. Our mission is also simple, to provide rhythm, location, and opportunity where you can have a life-changing experience with God. Journey within the diversity to do these three things, become disciples of Jesus, to deliver hope, and to champion this city. That is where we are going. That is what we're doing. So where are you going? Maybe that's a good question for you. What are your next steps? I would encourage you to join one of our monthly expeditions. The expedition is a simple experience where you can find out more about who you are in Christ, who Summit Church is, what are we doing around here, and how you can play a part. 
It's less than a two hour commitment for your whole month. We also feed you some amazing food and even provide childcare. So the question is, where will we go? Maybe we're on a journey following Jesus together. And I got a hunch, we just might not be us without you. We'll see you at the summit where we prepare for life in the valley. Thank you.